Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The world that we live in is a world of make-believe, and we can all be susceptible to that, even if we don't realize it. Television is a major contributor in feeding us things as truth, which are anything but. Here is a list of some of them. See if you recognize any. All grocery shopping bags contain at least one stick of French bread. The ventilation system of any building is the perfect hiding place. The Eiffel Tower can be seen from any window in Paris. I like this one. A man will show no pain while taking the most savage beating, but will immediately wince when a woman tries to cleanse his wounds. Cars that crash will almost always burst into flames. Any lock can be picked by a credit card or a paper clip in seconds, unless it's the door to a burning building with a child trapped inside. All bombs are fitted with electronic timing devices with large red readouts so you know exactly when they'll go off. And finally, it does not matter if you are heavily outnumbered in a fight involving martial arts. Your enemies will patiently wait to attack you one by one by dancing around in a threatening manner until you have knocked out all their predecessors. We left last week, or last time on verse 36 with Jesus declaring, If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But these people are having none of that. And that's where we'll pick up this morning in verse 37. Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. I want to be able to see you. Jesus says in verse 37, I know you are Abraham's descendants. But then in verse 39, he says, you are not Abraham's children. Is this a contradiction? No. Abraham's seed and Abraham's children are two separate entities. The term Abraham's seed refers to the physical offspring of Abraham, the people of Israel, while Abraham's children refers to all those who believe in God. And because Jesus did tell them the truth in verse 37, he confronts them with the fact that not only did they not just disagree with his position, they actually wanted to kill him. I wonder what it would have been like if we had asked Jesus how it went after he finished one of his sermons. So, Jesus, how did it go? Well, he says, some people argued with me and wanted to arrest me. A big chunk of the audience walked out right in the middle of my sermon, and the rest of the people picked up stones to kill me. But other than that, I'd say it went pretty well. Later in John 15, 20, Jesus will say, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Do you know what that tells me? 
Persecution is to be expected if we are standing for the truth. I once read someone describe the ideal Christian as one who is completely fearless, continually joyful, and constantly in trouble. Now, perhaps the theology could be refined, but that makes good practical sense. Unquestionably, Christians could stand to be a little less fearful and a lot more joyful, but in trouble? Yes, in constant trouble. And that's not to suggest we're supposed to go out inviting trouble or seeking it. However, if we are faithfully standing and proclaiming the truth, trouble will become our constant companion. Now, we know this on an instinctive level and too frequently choose to keep the truth hidden away. Let's face it. We'd rather be liked than risk rejection by simply stating what we know to be true. We have to come to terms with Jesus was a radical individual. He was the most imposing personality. He entered the temple to find people groping about in spiritual darkness and thirsting for divine truth, and he boldly stated, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. He also said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He fearlessly spoke the truth without any kind of apology. He joyously walked in the truth, and therefore he was in constant trouble for his uninhibited love of the truth. It is the same today, of course. For if a desire not to offend men were the measure of what could be taught, little of the teaching of the word of God could be communicated. Years ago, an evangelist went to a town in Nevada to hold meetings. When he met the minister of the liberal church there, he was told, Now, my friend, I want to tell you there are certain things you must not say here and certain sins about which you must not speak. For instance, you cannot talk about drinking, for that is big business here. And don't mention about men and, li men and women living together outside of marriage. And whatever you do, don't mention gambling. The poor evangelist looked at the minister and said, Well, of whose sins may I speak? The other man thought for a second and then said, Go for the sins of the Paiute Indians. They never go to church anyway. Now, please listen. You'll laugh later. Please listen carefully to me here. There are truths that need to be stated whether or not men or women are offended. Since Jesus knew this, he spoke the truth here. We must not ever try to mold God into our image. You see, when it comes to matters of truth, we can either change our behavior to match the standard of God's word, or we can change our standard or the standard to match our behavior. So when God plainly says marriage is only to be between a man and a woman, people can either accept that and adjust accordingly, or they can say that their standards are higher than God's standards. 
But the Almighty will not be manipulated like that. He is the potter, and we are the ones who shuffle around on clay feet. In a lot of ways, we want God to be a Stepford God. Do you remember the movie or the book, The Stepford Wives? Remember in that movie, in that community of Stepford, the men didn't want to have to deal with their wives. They plugged a little chip in their brains, and all their wives were perfect. They could cook perfectly, were totally cordial, and never had an opinion on anything. Kind of how like it's going to be in heaven. Just kidding. But listen, many of us want to have a step for God. We want God to be just like us. We want to be able to fortify what we value by saying, this is what God accepts. But I'm here to tell you, God revealed himself to us specifically in the Bible to challenge all of our presuppositions. Things like about who God is and what God values. And he reveals himself specifically in the Bible. Look at verse 41 with me. Jesus then tells them, You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. Well, things are about to turn nasty. Infuriated by Jesus' continued insistence that they were not Abraham's spiritual children, the Jews lashed out at him with a vicious insult. Their mocking statement, we were not born of fornication, was undoubtedly a disparaging reference to the controversy surrounding the birth of Jesus. In other words, they were implying that his birth, unlike theirs, was illegitimate. Much like today, people scoff at the idea of a virgin birth. I'm sure Jesus, Mary, and Joseph spent their lives realizing the majority of the people around them were certain that Jesus had been born out of wedlock. But Jesus insisted that if God was their father as they contended, they would love the son whom the father has sent. But they were unable to understand why. Because they are not able to listen to his word. The same is true today. The reason why so many people have so many goofy ideas about who Jesus is stems from that exact same error. They don't read or listen to his word. Therefore, they come to faulty conclusions about his life and about his teachings. Verse 44, please. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. This is a very sobering truth. But Jesus is plainly saying that a person can only have 
one spiritual father. It is either Jehovah God or it is the devil. There is no middle ground there. Now, I know when people hear that, they immediately want to protest. Are you telling me that Grandma Ethel's father is the devil just because she's not a Christian? How can you say that? She doesn't drink or cuss and makes lemonade and cookies for the children in the neighborhood. Are you telling me that her father is really old Slewfoot himself? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. Here's where people who don't understand Scripture can get really confused. You see, it's not a matter of good or bad when it comes into entering heaven. If you want to get right down to it, there are a lot of Mormons who put many Christians to shame when it comes to morality. And there are a lot of Muslims who put Christians to shame when it comes to the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting. But once again, good and bad are not the issue. Then what is it? It's not an issue of good or bad. It's an issue of holy or unholy. And the reason is, since God is infinitely holy, he can only accept those in his presence who are also holy. And according to the Bible, the only way one can be made holy is to accept the sacrifice of Jesus. Romans 5.19 puts it like this. And speaking of Adam, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now you can substitute the word righteous with the word holy and do the text no harm. Of course, once again, that's even if people believe in a literal devil, and not surprisingly, Many, if not most, don't. They think Christians are naive and silly to believe in such nonsense. But often, these are the same people who can believe that Elvis is still alive and married to a two-headed clone, and they're living in Atlanta somewhere. They're like the two boys who were walking home from Sunday school after hearing a strong sermon on the devil. One said to the other, what do you think about all this Satan stuff? Do you think the devil is real? The other boy replied, well, you know how Santa Claus turned out. It's probably just your dad. <laughs> Jesus then declares that Satan is both a murderer and the father of lies. His convincing lie to Eve, you will not surely die, led to the spiritual ruin of the entire human race. And to this day, he continues to deceive people cleverly disguising himself as an angel of light. It shames me to say that before I was saved, I was a chronic liar. I use lies to get out of any uncomfortable position and also to make myself look greater than I actually was. I'll give you an example. 
If I was limping around and you asked me how I got hurt, I would tell you it was an old football injury. But what I wouldn't tell you was that I actually just tripped over a Nerf football in the living room and sprained my ankle. Now, did I tell you the truth? In the technical sense, yes. But from God's viewpoint, it was still a bold-faced lie because I purposely misled you by my answer. Finally, Jesus sums it up by saying, because I tell you the truth, you don't believe in me. This is a true story from a newspaper years ago to show you how blinded people can be. When police told 20-year-old Alex Paulus that a woman had identified him as one of the three men who had burst into an apartment late Saturday night and held the occupants at gunpoint, enraged and insulted, Paulus said, quote, that is impossible. How could she tell it was me? I had a mask on the entire time. You know, very much like that, the Pharisee's skeptical response illustrates just how obtuse unbelief is. It is never convinced no matter how compelling the evidence. If you think about it, Jesus performed miracles unparalleled in human history. Yet though he had performed so many signs before them, they still refused to believe in him. Verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Which one of you convicts me of sin is a bold affirmation of what theologians refer to as Christ's impeccability. What that refers to is his utter holiness and separation from all sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 that he had been tempted in all things as we were, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26 describes him as holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners. And 1 Peter 2.22 affirms that he committed no sin. Only the perfectly holy one in intimate communion with the Father could dare to issue such a challenge. When Jesus Christ came, he perfectly obeyed the law of God. He perfectly kept every word of the scripture. That's the reason he can look at his opponents and say, which of you charges me with sin? Does anybody here know of anything I've ever done wrong or anything I've even ever said wrong? That's the reason why when he came up out of the waters at his baptism, the Holy Spirit came down and God said, you are my beloved son and with you, I am well pleased. The praise of the praiseworthy that is above all rewards, Jesus had that. How do we get that? We know we're going to fail. But what if one of us said that? Which one of you in here can convict me of any type of sin? Which one of us can look at just this small gathering and have the nerve to ask, if any husbands and wives, if anyone in this room has ever seen us sin even 
one single time. Who among us can honestly say that? Which of you convicts Pastor Bill of sin? The only answer would be, where does that line format? We'd have to set up a microphone. Look, I know Bill Scott. And so it's not just the outward sins that you may have seen that I have to face, but the multitude of inner sins that no one knows about but God and me. And so if all of my sins were written down and put in little manila folders, the only answer to which of you convicts me of sin would be how many dump trucks do you want delivered the first day? We know we're not always going to keep the words of the Holy One. So, what is our only hope? Once again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin that, he, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that is our only hope. Verse 48. And the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Now I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Things have now disintegrated to the point that not only do these Jews call Jesus a liar and one born of fornication, they now declare the very Son of God to be possessed by a demon. In all the statements ever uttered throughout all of history, that has to be the one that is furthest away from the truth that has ever been declared. It amazes me the restraint of Jesus here that he just doesn't turn them all to a bunch of stone gargoyles. That actually just might be the residue of me being raised on Saturday morning cartoons. Instead, he says, not only do I not have a demon, but instead my entire life is honoring to God. And because of that, that is convicting you of sin. And that is the reason why you are dishonoring me. Obviously, obviously then, he could not have been demon-possessed, since no demon-possessed person could possibly ever honor God. Then in verse 50, Jesus makes clear to them why he came. First, unlike them, Jesus did not seek his own glory. Had that been his desire, he could have just remained in heaven and continued in the divine glory that had been his from all eternity. Christ, however, did not come to earth seeking his own accolades, but he came to seek and to save that which is lost. As the old hymn says, left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite is grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Though Jesus did not seek his own glory, there is one who seeks honor for the Son, and that is the Father. Unlike sinful man, God judges rightly, and he is determined that his Son is worthy of all glory. Both at his baptism and his transfiguration, the Father said of the Son, 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But you know what? Despite all that, mankind still persists in dishonoring the son of God. And the reason is mankind is sinful despite all their protestations to the contrary. If you want proof that we're sinful, one of the best ways is just to turn out the lights. Sin is what we do in the dark when no one is watching. Like if you go to the theater to see a movie and you get a nice big bucket of popcorn, you walk into the movie as a normal human being and then the lights dim. And out of nowhere, where you become a complete slob. First, you assume the slob position. You slouch forward in your chair, place the bucket of popcorn on your stomach, and you open your mouth as wide as you can. You start kind of flicking popcorn in the general direction. Or you take the biggest hand of popcorn possible, and even though you know there's no possible way it could all fit in your mouth, you try anyway. And you spill about half of it down your shirt and onto the floor. When there's nothing left in the bucket, you start eating popcorn off your shirt and your jeans. And if you're really gross, in the crevices of the seat. It's amazing what happens when we think that others can't see. Now, you wouldn't act like that in the light. But here's the thing. Jesus, who is the light of the world, sees us even in the darkness. And he sees not only the popcorn that misses our mouths, but he also sees what we think of other people, what we say behind their backs, the things we choose to look at, and even how we spend our money. Nothing is away from his, his eyes. Last verse, please. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Jesus now blows their minds by telling them it is possible to never see death. We will get more into what he meant by that next week. Now, if you didn't know, death is a pretty big problem for mankind. The satirical site The Onion ran a humorous article with a biting truth about this. The article was entitled, World Death Rate Holding Steady at 100%. The article reported, World Health Organization officials expressed disappointment Monday at the group's finding that, despite the enormous efforts of doctors, rescue workers, and other medical professionals worldwide, the global death rate remains constant at 100%. Death, a metabolic affliction causing total shutdown of all life's functions, has long been considered humanity's number one health concern. Responsible for 100% of all recorded fatalities worldwide, the condition currently has no cure. Director General Dr. Gernst Blott said, I was really hoping with all the new radiology treatments, rescue helicopters, aerobic TV shows and what have you, that we might at least make a dent in it this year. Unfortunately, it would appear that the death rate remains constant in total as it has since the dawn of time. Let me ask you this morning, what happens to you the moment that your body dies? Notice I said the moment your body dies. I said this because the essential you, your soul, 
will absolutely, positively never experience death. Remember, you're not a body that has a soul. You're a soul that has a body. Your body just enables your soul to interact with the physical world. So even though your body may die, your soul will not be harmed. Here Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Notice that phrase, most assuredly. Jesus is telling us to listen up. He's emphasizing that what he is about to say is something that we can all count on. And he says, you will never see death. Now, of course, once again, Jesus is just talking about the death of the body. Jesus wasn't in any kind of denial. Unless we are raptured, our bodies will one day die. But it's interesting. In Luke 21, Jesus tells his disciples, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, now listen to this part. But not a hair of your head will perish. So here Jesus says some of his disciples will actually be put to death. That's happening around the world right now, by the way. But then he says something else amazing. Not a hair of your head will perish. Well, wait a minute. Many Christians have been burned to death. And others have been beheaded. Now, we would typically say that having our head set on fire or removed from our torso would at least harm some, if not all, of our hairs. But Jesus said, even if they kill you, they will not harm even a hair on your head. What Jesus means is, they can kill your body, but they cannot touch the real you. Your soul will remain completely unharmed. As we finish up, Donald Barnhouse was the pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church when his wife died and left him with four young daughters to raise. He did something that I could never do. He conducted his own wife's funeral. It was while they were driving to the funeral that he realized he had to say something to try to explain all of this to his girls, to somehow put something into perspective for them, which he himself was already struggling with. They stopped at a traffic light driving to the funeral. It was a bright day, and the sun was streaming into the car, warming it. A truck pulled up to them, and the shadow that came with the truck darkened the inside of their car. It was then that he turned to his daughters and asked, Would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? One of them responded, Oh, Daddy, that's a silly question. The shadow can't hurt you. I'd rather be hit by the shadow than by the truck. It was then that he tried to explain to them that their mother had died, and it was as if she had been hit by a shadow. It was as if Jesus stepped in the way in her place, and it was he who had been hit by the truck. He then quoted to them the familiar words of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You know, this morning, there are many ways in which death has the darkest shadow of all. 
It strikes the greatest fear because it is the one valley through which all of us must walk. There are no exceptions. No exemptions are given to any of us. And yet we can be confident that it cannot really harm us. And in fact, it can be the vehicle that will transport us into glories that we can't even possibly conceive of this morning. We'll come back next week and we will see how the Jews respond to this. This being the uh, first Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion. Ask everyone to come up, please.